This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or a random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who just rediscovered his first love, bourbon. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Captain, I have to apologize. It's too early in the show for bourbon, so today we are drinking Tuckerman Brewing Company's Pale Ale out of Conway, New Hampshire, garage grade. How about three and a half bottle caps out of five? This is Tuckerman's flagship pale ale and is brewed with specialty malts, some grown in Maine, and four types of hops. This brew is cold conditioned and dry hopped in lagering tanks for maximum taste and quality, and this great pale ale was brought to us by these hop heads, First, we have Deva in Coeur Lane, Idaho. And a big shout out to AEU Engine 275. We got Stevie, Terry, and Justin. We like the cut of your jib. And next, we have Jennifer from Hoover, Alabama. Jennifer says, cheers, fellas. Love the garbage. I think <laughs> I'm hoping Jennifer made a typo there and meant to say love the garage. I think she's talking about you. <laughs> And a big shout out to Olivia in Charlotte, North Carolina. Next, we have Coastal Chic Mom from Pont Vadre Beach, Florida. Now I'm just going to guess, but I don't think you said that correctly. I, I don't think I got any of that right. Next up, we have Justin in Aurora, Colorado. And we'll finish the shout outs with some big Texas love. First, we have David in Pflugerville, and we also have Michael in Magnolia. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. I think I'm going to start my own uh, bourbon fund. <laughs> and also, they are here. Dun, dun, dun. What is here? Parts Unknown t-shirts. Oh, fantastic. If you'd like to be a resident of Parts Unknown, you can only do so if you have the t-shirt. And that will be a two-week pre-order. The pre-order begins now, and you can do that by going to truecrimegarage.com. Go to the store page. That's enough of the business. Everybody gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. 
On the afternoon of Monday, February 9th, Mara Murray left the University of Massachusetts campus. Before leaving, she emailed her professors, saying she was taking a few days off due to a death in the family. Around 4 p.m., Mara withdrew nearly all of her money from her bank account at a campus ATM. It is believed that she left the university campus shortly after this. At 7.27 p.m., over 100 miles away from the UMass campus, a woman living in Haverhill, New Hampshire, reported a car accident on a sharp corner of Route 112 near her home. Mara Murray had wrecked her car. At 7.29, an officer is dispatched to the scene of the accident. At 7.30, Butch Atwood is driving a school bus returning to his home when he spots Mara and her wrecked vehicle on the side of the road. He stops and he offers her a ride to his home so they can call in the accident. Mara is not interested in going with Butch. Butch asks her if she would like for him to call the police. Mara says, no, that won't be necessary. I've already called AAA for roadside assistance. However, Butch knew she was lying because there's no cell phone service. Upon arriving home several minutes later, Butch reported the accident to emergency services. At 7.46 p.m., Cecil Smith, a local police officer, was the first to arrive at the scene. Mara's vehicle is still at the scene of the accident, but Mara is nowhere in sight. At 7.54, a be on the lookout call goes out. Officers should be looking for a 5'7 female who left the accident scene on foot. Two minutes later, EMS and firefighters arrive on the scene. Butch Atwood, the driver of the bus, reported that Mara was, to his knowledge, alone. She appeared to be cold, possibly frightened, possibly intoxicated. At some point during this very small window of time, Mara Murray went missing. To this day, Mara's family, especially her father Fred, are still looking for her. Mara Murray simply vanished that night. Today on True Crime Garage, we get the opportunity to talk to three people closest to the Mara Murray case. True crime author James Renner and host Maggie and Art of the Oxygen six-part documentary series, The Disappearance of Mara Murray. James Renner, a true crime addict, came out in May. Of 2016. Wow, it's been that long. Yeah. Last night I see you on my TV, today I see you in the flesh. (laughs) Um, So thank you for joining us. And yes, ladies, he looks better in person. Oh, thank you. It's like a... If that's even possible. If that's even possible. So strikingly handsome on last night's episode of The Disappearance of Mara Murray. (laughs) Well, they kept on calling him author. I'm like, do they mean model? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I should come down here more often this is great no i always i always tell people well, what's james Ryan like i'm like well he looks like nick nick's cousin yeah i could see that yeah we could pass how long after the book do you find out that this documentary series is going to happen and now we need you to be involved in in what type of involvement you're going to have 
You know, so it's being produced by this group called Texas Crew Productions, and I think I started hearing from them around the time that the book was being released in 2016, and uh, started talking to this guy, David Carabinas, and um, he just, you know, I, I got a lot of calls from production companies around that time that wanted to do something with the Moore Murray case, and it got to the point, you know, as you guys know, and we talked a little bit about this behind the scenes, you have producers that are coming to you looking for, you know, possible shows that you might do. And it always leads nowhere, you know, and it, it just gets so frustrating after a while. Um, but it's always, you, you can't pass up that opportunity because who knows? And, but David, there was something else about him that he was very invested. He knew all the minutia of the case. And he really, you could tell he just wanted to do something with it and explore it. So, you know, I kind of developed uh, a friendship and, uh, he, you know, he said, this is going to happen. And I said, oh, I, I want to believe you. And then about six months later, he's like, yep, we got uh, a series order. You know, it's not just one special, it's six part series and we're going to do this and come out to Texas so we can meet you. So I flew out to Austin, you know, I think about a year ago and met the crew. I didn't meet Maggie until she came to the house for the interview. They wanted to keep us separate. But we went over all the materials I had, and I, you know, I said, here's the questions that I remained with uh, after publication of this book. Here are the things I don't quite understand about the Maury Murray case that you guys, you know, have the capability to dig deeper into. And uh, they were able to get access to the family, the Murray family and Fred and s- some other people that uh, I was never able to talk to. So it's, it's really interesting. I'm watching this both as a, you know, a quote unquote expert on the case, but also as a, as as a viewer, you know, not knowing what we're going to get towards the end of the series or how many answers we're going to get to these questions. And, you know, some of the, I, I know that some of the big questions in the Maury Murray case will be answered by the end of this series. So what are those questions that you'd like to have answered? Well, I want to know, like, you know, that ATM footage. There's ATM footage out there of Mora right before she left UMass Amherst. I want to see that, you know, we, we, does that show anything? Some people have speculated that the ATM footage shows that she had a black eye. Was that the re, you know, uh, was something going on before she disappeared? I really want to know more about Kate Markopoulos and Sarah Alfieri. These are friends of Mora's that were at this party uh, that occurred the Saturday night before she disappeared on that Monday afternoon. Um, I think there's more that happened at that party and and they would be key to that. So if we can get any answers about that party, um, I think that would be key. And last night's episode, um, that they were putting some tough questions to Kathleen Murray, Maura's older sister. And if you remember, Maura had this breakdown at work on Thursday night and, uh, you know, it was Kathleen that supposedly was on the phone with her. So, you know, maybe we'll get a, a little more about that. But, um, you know, I have questions about the friends, Kate and Sarah. I have questions about the boyfriend, Bill Roush. You know, he has a pretty good alibi. It looks like he was at Fort Sill halfway across the country during the disappearance. But I want to know more about the days after the disappearance. Where where was Bill? What was he doing? Um, you know, because some, you know, allegations have come out since then that cast Bill in a very negative light. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a tons, tons of questions. The big question that I really hope we get some sense of an answer to by the end of the series is what Maura was doing up in the White Mountains. Because this has always been a double mystery. It's like, what happened to Maura Murray? But what was she doing in the White Mountains to begin with? 
And I think if we got the answer to that question, we'd be a lot closer to figuring out the other. Well, there was that information that came out about the University of Massachusetts having a cabin up in that area. And I think it points to the, it's probably the most likely place that she was heading. Didn't you, along with Tim and Lance from the Missing Mara Murray podcast, go up there and check out the cabin? No, I went up a couple weeks before they were up there. Uh, I think it just didn't work in our schedules. Um, so I ended up going up there alone. You know, I think, I really think that that cabin that the outing club at, at UMass was using, I, I think that's, I'm 90% sure that was her destination that night. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was headed straight that way. It doesn't, it, and then when, you know, I contacted the manager of the, the cabin and I asked, I said, do any of these names sound familiar to you? And I just gave him a list of everybody that Moore kind of knew. Right. And he got right back. He said, yeah, Hossein Baghdadi, which right. is the track coach that Mora was having an affair with. And that gave me chills. You know, so we have that connection to the to the cabin. She might have gone up there with Haas. At the very least, Haas probably knew the combination um, to get into the cabin because it's one of those push-button Things where, where like a realtor would use exactly, yeah. and the combination hasn't changed in fifteen years. And even if she didn't, you there was ways to get into that cabin, anyways. Um, now, you know, Tim and Lance went up there and they filmed some stuff, and they came away thinking no way she could have got up there in 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 the winter. But what they didn't, because they hiked, it's like a half mile hike through the woods to get up there. What they didn't realize was that there's also an access road. Um, a little to the, I, I think a little north of where they entered. And at that access road at that time, you could drive your car all the way up almost to the cabin. Right. Uh, so, and people w- would stay there on the weekends and people stayed there the weekend before she disappeared and the weekend after. And anybody with the outing club knew that that cabin was empty during the week and she disappears on a Monday. So it makes, all this stuff makes sense that that was probably her, uh, destination, and I think a search of the grounds around that cabin um, would be something that we should have been done a long time ago. With your interview on the show, was you you seem very adamant that she was pregnant, and that's one of the things that I differ with you on. I see where you're getting to that point. I I tend to, as a journalist who's written about crime for a while now, I tend to put a lot of weight on the hunches of the detectives who investigate the case for many years. And the mm-hmm. lead detective, Scarinza, who was the lead detective for many years on the Moore Murray case, told me, he's like, I think she was pregnant, you know, based on the searches she was doing on her computer. And some people will say, well, when they found her car, there were there was birth control in there right? Uh, with, with some pills missing. It's like, yeah, she didn't take it with her right? because she didn't need them anymore because she was pregnant. Everything that she, you know, she had a, a bunch of junk in her car right. uh, that she was just carrying around. And, and the fact a, that it was left in the car speaks to the fact that, you know, she was probably pregnant, in my mind, anyways. Yeah, or she started taking a cycle, and then she stopped that cycle, and then she started a new one. Yeah, who And knows? then found it later. But, you know, because they were kind of talking about that last night on the show was, you know, she was in a class for nursing. Yeah, and- I think that's a stretch, though. Yeah, but I, I, what, what, I, what I don't think is a stretch is that I'd say most females from the age of 20 to 35, that if they have ever, like maybe their 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 period is late, uh, they might not have missed it, but they're late, that they start Google searching this stuff. And, spe- and especially nursing students, they're more likely to. Right. 
Uh, I mean, did you, you know, ever ask your wife, like, how many times have you... Right, um, and again, the, you know, we've got three dudes here talking about the nature <laughs> of of periods in, you know, 21-year-old females. You know, I, I mean, that's a whole can of worms I, I don't really know much about, nor nor care to. Right, but but what I, my question is more other than that search. Yeah, uh, other than the search, what, what do I have to... Because it, it provides, in my mind, a, a clear motive for her to not only run away, but to remain hidden right. when you consider what was going on with Bill Roush. And if she realized that she was pregnant uh, with Bill Roush's kid, I think um, it gives her motivation to leave at that time mm-hmm. and uh, motivation to remain off the grid and hidden because she would never want custody to be an issue. Right. Um, it's no doubt in my mind that the bill uh, has some issues with violence against women. Um, and for that matter, I, you know, I, I do believe that Moore would also want to, um, you know, get away from her father uh, and some, you know, family members there too, which is a hard thing to say yeah. um, because the father's still out there and he's looking for his missing daughter and i don't think fred murray knows where she is i don't know that if more is alive that she would want him to know um because you you have kind of speculated in the past that maybe he knew or possible members of the family knew i just you know it's weird because i i'm sure fred knows more about what's going on and you can read in his you know just his behavior since the disappearance um you know, that he clearly knows more than he's been comfortable sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, there were times where I wondered, well, does that mean he knows where she is or what happened? And I don't think he knows where she is. I don't think he necessarily knows what happened up on that road. I think he knows a lot more about why she was there in the first place. Right. And that would be because of the conversation on that Saturday night. Is she wrecked his car? He was visiting that weekend, mm-hmm. which is weird too. He's got $4,000 in cash. Um, he wrecks her car and, you know, so was there an argument about that? Did he say some, some mean, nasty things? Was that the, you know, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back? And mm-hmm. she's like, fine, I'll put you in my rear view too. See you later. Um, but no, I, you know, it's clear that, that Fred has, uh, not shared everything he, yeah. he knows about the case. Well, it's good to hear you actually say that you, you don't think he knows where she's at, though. I don't Just think because, because so. uh, I think when I started following the case, I, I leaned to sometimes like, well, maybe the family knows. But then once you come and find out that he searched every weekend, and then after a year of searching every weekend, then they search every other weekend. But that's a lot of time <clears throat> and a lot of money. Oh yeah. And if you knew that she went missing and you well, knew she was safe, then why would you do any of that? And he goes above the heads of the investigators and yeah. presents to their superiors that this is not a good investigation, that they're not doing everything that they can. Right. To the governor of, of New Hampshire. Right. And a lot of people would argue with you saying, well, that means he doesn't know anything. But I like the way that you, you answered that because it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't dismiss your conclusion because if he knows that she took off for some reason or knew that she she had motives to take off for some reason, but then she goes up there and now he's left going, well, where is she? Yeah. She's not contacted me. What happened to her once she got up there or why did she, why did she disappear and not want to contact me? Um, 
So that that to me washes all that away as far as his actions and how much he's looked for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's clear to me that he wanted to find her before the police found her. You know, that that's always been clear. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's weird that he is. But that's a protect. That's a protective. Maybe. Bad thing though, maybe. Right? Yeah. He wants to, you know, he wants to make sure she's not in trouble before she comes out. Um, but he's a he's a he's a weird weird dude, tough nut. Uh, I don't quite understand. Do you think they're going to peel back his layers a little bit as the show? Oh, goes for on? sure. Yeah, I think so. I think they'll put some tough questions to him. Um, I think they've they've gone easy so far. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he responds. Yeah. You know, when they start asking the the tough questions about what he knows and what he doesn't know. I think what I mean we're only two episodes in, but it seems so. It seems like Maggie is on this search for that. There's a couple of these what ifs mm-hmm. and we're going to get to these what ifs like it just, you know, from episode one to episode two, I don't know what these, you know, what ifs are. Sure. But well, it's like, I think it's, you know, is, is it, or <laughs> is it suicide? Is it murder? Is it a walk away? Is right. it an abduction? I think those are the, those are the big answers. You know, it's one of those. Well, let's get into that a little bit because uh, one thing that they point out in the docu-series uh, early on is that, the locals where she disappeared from seem to all think that she was abducted or have kind of share that opinion. Yeah. Does, what does that say? What should that say to us about that area or about that community? It's certainly a strange place. And I don't think it's any, (laughs) you know, I, you guys watch breaking bad, right? Yeah. I was a big fan of that show. And it's, it's funny to me that when Walter White needed to hide out, you know, they stuck him in the, the, you know, the white mountains of New Hampshire right. and told him not to leave. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are people that go up there to go off the grid, you know, to remain hidden. And it's just a different place. So it, it brings out the, the weirdos, the conspiracy theorists, the people that just want to be alone. Uh, so you have a lot of those, those types up there. But I'll never get behind the idea that she was abducted by a stranger. There's just no way in my mind that that will ever make sense. It's the the odds are astronomical because, you know, we're dealing with a window where she's on the side of the road that that's, you know, maybe 7 minutes where she's she's there in which this person would have had to have come by and put her into the car and take her off and then nobody sees it. You've got three neighbors that are watching the scene at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you know, there are only many windows in there where nobody's actually watching the scene. So it's just, uh, you know, improbable that a person that has that capability of murder and abduction would happen upon her in that window and then not be seen. It makes much more sense to me that she would have been traveling in tandem with somebody that she knew. And that person was the one that came back around and picked her up and took her off because that interaction would only have taken a couple seconds. Um, and, and I know that people will argue with that and say, well, stuff like that happens all the time. People are abducted because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Not really. Not like this. Not when you're already um, involved in something where you're, you're getting away and running away and you have a plan while you're up there. Um, I mean, if you wrote it as a as a movie script, it would get kicked out because it's too unbelievable. I, I agree with you. the The window of her getting in a stranger's car it's it's not going to be a thirty second interaction of oh well you seem nice let me jump in your car yeah right uh so that 
obviously points to more of the tandem driver theory, and that's one of your theories. Anytime you know, you know the the Renner haters that will say <laughs> I don't agree with them on anything. Yeah. One of the things I agree with you a lot on is the tandem driver theory. But the only thing that I question is that also she already had one interaction, mm-hmm. and now this fight or flight mentality is going to take you know is going to keep building stronger. Especially now you have a guy that is going to go call the cops, right? So would she have been more inclined to take the just, next offer? Right. Hey, I can help you. Boom, I'm in your car. Yeah. So I think that might be, you know, because there wasn't one interaction, I don't want to rule that out completely. Because of the... The search dogs? Yeah, the search dogs stopping in the middle of the road. I always thought that that was a key piece of evidence yeah, that she is. obviously got into a car. For sure. If, if, she were, if she were a child or a teenager walking down the street in our neighborhood... Mm-hmm during broad daylight and then she goes dis- and she disappears and they know what route she was traveling. If you put search dogs on that and the dogs stop in the middle of the street, the investigators always say that when, when scent ends, they got, they got in a car. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age 
or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add ons to choose from every week, You'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. First off, Maggie and Art, thank you for joining us in the garage. The captain and I have both been really enjoying the Disappearance of Mara Murray six-part docu-series on oxygen. The first thing that we both took note of was that you both came into this case to investigate, and you didn't seem to be showing up with a, a theory that you wanted to prove. You seem to be letting the investigation go where it led you. Yeah, I think I, that's exactly correct. I mean, Maggie and I have talked about this several times that that um, 
you know, obviously I come at it looking at it from the law enforcement perspective. This is my 40th year in law enforcement at several different levels, uh, not only federal, but also I was an Army MP and a local police officer in Massachusetts and uh, 25 years with the Marshals and six years with, uh, almost six years with Homeland Security. Um, and Maggie brings brings that investigative reporter, that investigative journalist side to it, and comes from a whole different angle than I do. And and we talked about this early on that I think the main point of what we were trying to do here is get to the basic facts of the case and wherever the facts takes us, it takes us. I mean that's it's as simple as that. And 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 I think you know from just looking at this case that there's so many misconceptions, myths, rumors, urban myths uh, out there on this particular case that it really, you, you have to go back to the beginning to get to the base facts. Well, I think the thing is, too, is that our, you know, a lot of people would look at him and think, oh, he's just a cop and he's on the cop side. But I was surprised when I met him that he was even willing to talk about a police conspiracy and talk about dirty cops. I mean, it just goes to his credibility. He didn't care where the evidence took him. If it took him to dirty cops, that's where we were going. He wasn't afraid to, you know, break that code of blue and go over that line. And um, I think that is really crucial to look at in this case, that he didn't come into this bias, and I didn't come in biased. I had no idea about anything. Um, so we really did just go with the evidence. Maggie, please take us through the filming process of the documentary, because as a viewer, it looks like you and Art are in control. It's just you two and a couple cameramen, and you're calling the shots. How does this work? Yeah, and Art knows lately because he gets like three phone calls from me a day yelling about this. Um, you know, it's like we have an entire team. It is not just me and Art calling shots. Like we can, you know, certainly put our foot down and say, I am not comfortable with that, which I had done many times. Um, but there is an entire team starting from the top down. There's the network, and then the producers report to the network, and then we report to the producers, and then the camera guys. And it's just like there are so many people working on this, and people just see me in art and think that we're like, hmm, let's get a person in the other room to see if Kathleen is lying or not. That did not come from me in art. I mean, there are so many people calling the shots, and that was actually something that we said, we don't really want this. We don't know how comfortable we are with this. And that was something that the network really wanted for that drama factor. Um, you know, people are really mad at me about it now. Uh, we did the best we could with it. Um, we thought that in the end, a scene like that came out as best that it could for what we were doing. Um, but people need to remember that this is an entire production and we kind of just have to do what we're told. I mean, of course, we are doing the investigating, but when the network says, hey, we need you to interview this person, I mean, it, there's not much we can really say. I mean, we're signed on contracts. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think in the very beginning, usually on, on all the criminal cases that I've worked on, fugitive cases and conducting internal affairs investigations, post-shooting investigations involving law enforcement officers, all those investigations generally started where you go to the outside and work your way in, okay? So in other words, you're talking to people on the periphery that have some knowledge, and then you work your way in to what you consider to be the individual you really want to talk to. 
In this particular case, we did it completely opposite. We started with a family and worked our way out. And, and I think that gave us the opportunity to at least have a lot more say as to who's going to be interviewed and, and which path we would take down, which avenue we would go down. And, and there were some, you know, obviously some tense moments between us and, 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 you know, sometimes they wanted us to do something that we didn't want to do. But generally, I think the, the overall scheduling and the people that we interviewed kind of fell in line. But we did have a few, a few conflicts with them, but we were able to work through it. We did. I think the show ultimately turned out to be a pretty good representation of how Art and I would, would um, you know, if we were in control, have it done. You know, we really wanted to talk about um, uh, Jane and John Doe's and that whole system that never made it into the show, and that was something we felt really passionately about getting in, um, and it just didn't work out. So it, it is difficult, and people need to understand that. Yeah, and when you and dealing with a, I mean, we had three at least three cameras on every shoot. Um, we had GoPros. We had all these different angles that were taken of everything that we were doing, and there was probably three hundred hours taken of. Uh, mm. Of, of video, um, that's not counting B-roll. So you triple that for B-roll. So we had close to a thousand hours worth of film that had to be edited down to six hours. Now each one of our interviews averaged, you know, about an hour to 90 minutes. So what you're catching is like five minutes of mm -hmm. the highlights. And I think that's important to know because when you spend an hour and a half with somebody and you're interviewing them, and in fact, I think, um, Kathleen's interview, uh, Maggie, took, what, three and a half hours? Three and a half hours, yeah. Yeah, and it's cut down to, like, maybe five minutes of highlights. But the point being, when you spend that much time with somebody, you can figure out what's going on. You know, are they, are they not, are they holding something back? Are they not telling me something that they don't want to be known? And that's, that's where, you know, you, you spending the time on these interviews doesn't get translated into the actual mm -hmm. show. What was your initial thought on James Renner, and maybe what were your thoughts on him after the whole production? Hey, Art, you want to answer that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think, listen, he uncovered a lot. He did, he, he uncovered a lot of information. Um, you know, obviously he wrote, he wrote his book about it. I think he made a lot of assumptions based on information that wasn't really corroborated, and that's one thing we tried to do. Maggie and I had many conversations about eyewitness, um, you know, w eyewitness statements and how you have to corroborate everything you get. And that's what we actually tried to do was, was really corroborate this information and not just take one person's word for something without getting, you know, one or two or even three uh, methods of corroborating that type of information. And I, 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 I think James's book was more about his kind of walk through this case and process as opposed to the actual investigative portion of the case that we did. I think that's the big difference in these, in what he did compared to what we did. Yeah. Uh, Renner, I mean, he did a lot for the case. When we were going back, I mean, even now Art and I are going back after every episode we watch and just trying to remember like, okay, where did we get that piece of information from and, and where did we get that? And we always make sure we have sources and the documents, um, and some things we realized, like, that came from Renner, and, and he uncovered a lot 
a lot of yeah. stuff. Like, I, I really credit him. We would not be here without him, without his book. I mean, he had his blog since 2012 that really brought this case back to light. And then, you know, Tim and Lance hopping on and making the podcast kind of, you know, as they met Renner, I mean, full credit to Renner, we would not be here without him. The documents that he got really, to me, was the key. He was able to get a hold of a lot of documents and talk to talk, the people that he was able to talk to had some pretty credible information. And I think that was the key part for us. That really started us moving in the correct direction. It did. I mean, Renner shared all of his documents. I mean, he was so helpful. He's still helpful. I mean, he'll still, it, it's really crazy. I mean, he will like see me going at it with people on the internet and he'll just send me an email like, Hey, look, the internet's nasty, Maggie. Like you just gotta just take, take one, take a breath, take it a step at a time. And it's just like, what the fuck James Renner, like just sending me these emails. Like he's just such a nice guy to, I think to, to me at least, um, he's been really helpful. He's been really supportive and you know, that that's what I think about him personally coming from different backgrounds. How did the two of you kind of game plan and strategize what you wanted to do with this investigation? Well, it probably started over a bottle of Tito's and then <laughs> we had these... as, as most, as most great plans do. Exactly. I, I don't know. We just kind of were on the same page from the beginning. It was a little weird. You know, we had never met before. And then here I am, this 28 year old woman, journalist suddenly paired with a 62 year old man on this project and it was just like it was kind of really weird at first we didn't know how to handle each other and then I guess over that bottle of Tito's we just realized like look we're really on the same page we actually agree with a lot of what the other is saying Art would say I think we need to talk to this person talk to this person I obviously trust what he's saying and I would say you know look maybe there is a police conspiracy we really should look at this and Art would say yeah, you know what? We got to look at it all, at all of it. We need to look at every single piece of information in detail. Yeah, you know, when we first started this thing, I remember talking to the producers and and Maggie, and we were like really worried about filling up six hours of TV time. That's a lot of time to fill up. I mean, uh, that that's a really hefty amount of time to to put content on TV. And uh, as we started moving through it. Um, we became concerned about what we were going to have to cut out. Um, and, and, you know, when it comes to the editing portion, again, um, you know, a lot of this stuff was, was unfortunately never made it onto the screen and we couldn't get to some of the stuff that we wanted to get to. Hopefully maybe we can do it in another, on another case, but yeah, it became, it became, Pretty much when when we looked at the whole model of working from the from the inside out, it was easy to determine, well, we got to talk to the family first. Mm. Um, and, and we kind of went from there and we had several pockets of people. Yeah, I remember this, Maggie. We had like groups of people and nobody was talking to each other. Yeah. And mm -hmm. each one had like pieces of info. And what we what we really became, Maggie and I became kind of the the hub in the in the wheel. And we were collecting all this different info um, uh, from the different groups of people. And I'm talking like, you know, high school friends, college friends, mm -hmm. law enforcement, uh, private investigators, um, family, and, and kind of putting it all together. Well, uh, Art, I'm going to say uh, you don't look a day over 30. <laughs>
And just like Nick carries the beauty on our show, I think you, I think Art, you carried the beauty very well on the documentary. I don't know about uh, that. Thank you. I don't know about that. No, Art really. Uh, okay, we would interview people, women, whenever we had a female interviewee, they loved art. Like it was, it was really wild. Like I didn't exist. It was just all about art. <laughs> Well, they couldn't see you because you weren't tall enough. <laughs> so I've been following this case for a very long time, and I've seen most of the characters in person or on TV at least. And one of the characters that I'm not very familiar with is a guy that's been investigating the case from the beginning, and I thought came off very well. I thought he came off with great ideas, very intelligent, and that is John Smith, but I heard that there are some rumors that he's not really happy with how the production came out. We've heard that too, um, but I think John, like a lot of other people, has, has have come up with some uh, conclusions not based on real facts, and which which is, I mean, I, I can see that from the point of view when you don't have all the information in front of you. I mean, we didn't have 100% of the information, but we had a lot. A lot of information was shared with us that was never shared with anybody else, which, which we can come to more uh, intelligent conclusions based on those facts and, and corroborating the stuff than probably anybody else can that's just like looking up the stuff online and talking to other people. Um, I'm not sure what... John's issue is with the show um, because all we've done is strive to get the truth and we've tried to corroborate any information that's either out there on the internet, that's online, that's in James' books, that's been published in, in magazine articles, and that's all we've really tried to do. Um, but th there's so much bogus information out there that people have relied on that really was – that it took us a lot of time – to wade through a lot of that stuff and, and actually come up with facts as opposed to just conjecture and then basing uh, you know, conclusions on wrong premises. And I think a lot of people have done that, and we see, we see it online all the time. What was the hardest question that you had to ask during the interview process and to whom? Um, I mean, definitely asking, yeah, I mean, definitely asking Fred, um, if he sexually assaulted Mora was probably the hardest. And we also thought he knew about that rumor. We were both even surprised at his reaction. I mean, before that, we had said, and everyone, producers had said to him, you know, we have to ask you tough questions. We're going to have to ask you tough questions. And we would look him in the eye and be like, there's going to be some really tough questions today. And, you know, he was like, hate me, I'm ready. Like, we got to get it all out there so we can move on. And I thought that he was ready for that question. Um, turned out he had never actually heard that before. And it was it was pretty difficult because I was very caught off guard. Um, you know, I just thought he was going to go, absolutely not, that never happened. You know, that scumbag James Renner. And <laughs> I was caught off guard by his reaction. Yeah, but his, but, but his reaction was completely genuine. I mean, there was no doubt. I mean, he had... He had never heard that before. I think on occasion, you know, people, and I've heard this before, that, that a lot of times, 
you know, when Fred's talking to family and friends, they don't tell him everything. They they kind of keep the, you know, Fred's not a young guy anymore. Um, and, you know, we've, we've looked him in the eye and, you know, he said to us on, on a couple of occasions, I just want to do everything I can before I, before I die to try to find out what happened to my daughter. And he was completely taken aback. That was probably by far the toughest question. And his reaction was, I thought, completely genuine. And he was really upset about it. And I, and I got a lot, a lot of um, people saying that I'm, like, the worst journalist ever and yeah. I'm, like, you know, so insensitive and I softball questions to the police, but I give Fred the hardest question. Um, that's just totally bogus. Um, this is a question that needed to be addressed because people would not stop talking about it, and it was out there, and he had never been asked that. So to be told that I'm a horrible journalist for asking questions that somebody has never actually been asked is really contradictory to itself. Um, you know, Art would agree. It's just yeah. something that had to be asked. When he said, he even said, he looked at me, he said, you know, how do I make this go away? And I just said, answer the question. All you have to do is just confront it and say, no, you know, that didn't happen. And of course, it's terrible and horrible that this is even out there. You know, where it even came from was, we don't even, you know, it was in Renner's, it was implied in Renner's book. Somebody told it to Renner and this person who told it to Renner is not a particularly savory character. So, of course, all this information is, you know, it's unfortunate it's out there, but it needs to be addressed. We wouldn't be doing our job if we just brushed, you over, know, it. brushed over it. Well, and you're exactly right, because as we have learned, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know, if you hadn't asked mm-hmm. that question, you would have been there would have been the same number of people coming out saying, well, you didn't ask Fred the hard questions. And I don't think we softballed the police either. I mean, they're saying we yeah. softballed the police. We ask them every single question anyone else would ask them. I would like to know what questions they have for the police that we did not ask. Right. While we're on the subject of talking to Fred Murray, Art, one thing that I noticed throughout the documentary was that when you are asking questions, you're very busy with pen and paper, jotting down notes, taking Mm -hmm. notes. And when you spoke with Fred, there was a much different approach. You put the pen and paper aside and you were really focusing in on his face and his eyes. We all know that Fred's a animated character and he talks with his hands. What was your strategy there? I, I know Fred. I've met with him several times off camera. I mean, he works at a hospital on Cape Cod that I, that I actually uh, visit the town quite a bit. And I've actually bumped, to him on, bumped into him on the street downtown a couple of times, uh, unrelated to this. And, um, you know, I, I, this was going to be probably the toughest interview we had. Uh, we've interviewed, we probably sat down with him, what, Maggie, three or four times? Yeah. I think for different interviews. And this, this was going to be the toughest one. And I just wanted to, 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 to look at his reaction to all this. And I kind of knew what he was going to say anyway. When you see me taking those notes, generally it's because this is the first time I've heard this stuff. And in this particular case, um, we kind of knew the answers he was going to give us to these questions. And, you know, if something different came out, then, of course, I would have written something down. But, you know, I kind of knew what he was going to come across, and I just wanted to to, to look him in the eye and, and, you know, get his get his true reaction. And I think that's exactly what we got, because that interview was tough, let me tell you. So with all the chatter 
going on with, you know, the possible theories out there, you know, the five main theories, but one of them being that it's a police conspiracy that maybe the police had something to do with it. Now it's 13 years later, they're finally given interviews that they never gave before. And a lot of people watching this, uh, I, I think they kind of assume that the police aren't being uh, upfront or truthful mm-hmm. or honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I will tell you this, that that it's hard for them to talk about this particular case and share, you know, all the information. Because this in this is an open criminal case in their mind, um, and which means it's difficult for them to share the information and all the information, um, which creates this gap. I call it the big gap. You see it almost every single time um, where you, you see a gap like this uh, in law enforcement information, and then they then the public fills the gap in with all these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that, that, you know, we had several meetings with law enforcement, and it took them a while to feel comfortable with us and realize that we were that we were the real deal, that we were just trying to get to the base facts. And I, what did it take, maybe Maggie, six weeks before they started sharing um, information with us? Hadn't been out there in the public before. I understand their point that you know they have to keep some information back, uh, you know, for the day that they do arrest somebody on this particular case. Um, they have to have information that they're keeping in their back pocket to corroborate whatever anybody's saying. So it's, it's, they're, they're walking a fine line here. And, and I think because they felt comfortable with us, they did share a lot of, a lot of information with us that have, has never been made public before. Do you feel like the police ultimately felt like this was a dead end case at this point, all these years later, Yeah, 13 years later? Yeah. Until you guys came along. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think they, you know, task forces and cold case task forces, you have to have something to work on. You can't keep a large group of people together and just sitting around in the office kind of rehashing stuff that you've already done and eliminated leads. So cases that are like 13 years old, cold cases, it's kind of like you're on a roller coaster. Sometimes you're going really fast and there's a lot of stuff to do and other times you're just moving real slow. And that was exactly what happened here is that you know, investigations go up and down as you proceed with them. And I think what the state police and the AG's office recognized is this could breathe some new life into this case. And, you know, with the with the first four or five shows already out, it already has. And not only that, but even when we were around uh, filming this show, people would come up and talk to us about the case. Mm-hmm. So even then it was generating new interest in the case us bringing them new information and, and angles that they hadn't looked at. I mean, the more eyes, the better. And, and really, the online community, it is it is great to have them. There are a lot of things. I mean, Renner got a lot of his information from his blogs, from people on that. And we know that the police do look at all of this stuff. And it's just unfortunate that the online community is focusing so much of their actually really good resources on a, on a dead-end lead. Um, but yeah, I think I think the police are are pretty hopeful with with the show and what we have have found. Now that the production is over on this case, um, was there ever any time? Because I know with uh, Tim and Lance when they went up and did some uh, boots on the ground investigation, 
that they had some threats that were made to them. Did you have any threats? Did you feel scared at all? We actually never got any threats, and I was really surprised about that. Yeah, I I don't think that we were ever scared. I mean, we have gone into a few interviews that didn't make it into the show, um, into some pretty seedy situations where it was the first time that I looked at Art and said, do you have your gun on you? And he did. Um, But that was probably the one time. Yeah, there wasn't much. I mean, I've been in a lot worse situations, I can tell you that, than this. And was I, I I thought the whole thing regarding Tim and Lance, that was all very strange stuff, interesting and strange. Um, But did I think we had any issues? I don't think so. Um, uh, You know, over my career, I've been threatened many times. And God, there was a portion of my life where I had my children under protection. So did I think any of this stuff was going to come back? I wasn't worried about it. Um, so it's, uh, I don't think it's one of these, you know, get that part of New Hampshire is kind of like people move up there to be alone, you know, like leave me alone type scenario. I don't need the government poking around in my business. And I only talk to law enforcement when I have to, which is fine. I mean, that's what makes us a great country. You can do what you want to do. But, um, I think maybe with, with Tim and Lance, people took exception to that and, and um, uh, you know, maybe tried to pull some stuff online with them. Of course, we all want to know what happened to Mara Murray. But if you could ask one of, if you could have one of the smaller questions in this case answered for you, what would that question be? Good question. To me, it's always been about Mora. Um, I think there's a lot of, stuff out there about a police conspiracy that, you know, for all intents and purposes, there is no police conspiracy. We've almost ran that to 100% to the ground. And, um, you know, I can say that that Cecil Smith was at that scene in his SUV 001. Um, and, you know, as he said in his interview, um, uh, you know, ending in episode four, beginning of five. Um, that's exactly what he was. I mean, everybody thinks there's this big conspiracy, but what they forget was, you know, we're looking at it 13 years later and we've got hindsight. Um, but what you forget is the police were responding to a simple motor vehicle accident, property damage, and it didn't look like anybody was hurt. And that's that held that way for probably a day, day and a half. I think for me, I think all of that will come out in the end. I think that when um, there is an arrest made or her body is found, all of these people that have been gung-ho on a police conspiracy are going to feel pretty silly about it. You know, I think it was, it was a great lead in the beginning. Like we, we thought about it and we went with it and we found the information. Um, Unfortunately, there's information that cannot be released, but I mean, you know, there is no police conspiracy. Um, all of these questions that people shoot out online, we have answers to those. People questioning Monaghan's timeline, they aren't even looking at Monaghan's timeline. You're actually looking at another officer's timeline. Monaghan's dispatch log 
is not in the Grafton County logs. He was not a Grafton County officer. He was a state officer. So these people have their facts completely wrong. But anyway, so besides answering that, which will be answered, um, I I would want to know where her her body is, where her remains are, because that's where the evidence is. And that is key. Where Where is Mora? I've never found enough evidence to lead me to believe that she was going up there to commit suicide or take a break from her whole life. But there's definitely evidence that she was going up there and she was heading towards somewhere to take at least a break. Do you have any thoughts on where she was heading or who she was heading with? I think that Renner is accurate in that there was somebody else involved probably. Um, Whether she's going to meet a friend or somebody, I personally don't think that she was going alone. Um, there could have been a tandem driver, like a friend or somebody. I don't think it was a tandem driver and somebody helping her escape. I think they were just going to clear her head. She bought enough booze for two people. Um, I, I think that there was possibly somebody going with her to just spend the weekend, hang out, take a break. She had all intentions on coming back. Yeah, I I agree. I think, you know, you've got five or six theories and you you see us map them out in one of the episodes. Yeah, none of those none of those are completely off the table until we can actually find her or her remains. So but we looked at the probability of what is what is more than likely that happened to her. And more than likely, you know, something there was foul play involved in what happened to her. Now, whether it was somebody she knows or somebody that mm-hmm. picked her up on the highway, that's the big, that's the big question. You know, what happened in that seven to 10 minute time period, which we probably even narrowed down to like shorter than that. But, you know, what happened in that time frame? We will see everybody back here tomorrow night in the garage. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.